I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Tea and Murder, part book club, part interview show, all Agatha Christie. I'm your host, Rebecca Tundy-Norman. I am thrilled to have here with us today composer Matthias Vestergaard. Matthias studied composition and piano at the Royal Danish Academy of Music in Copenhagen. He recently premiered his third opera, Lisbon Floor, which was fantastic at the Copenhagen Opera Festival. And his upcoming works include a piano concerto and a ballet score. He is also... My brother-in-law. Welcome, <laughs> Matthias. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm nice so here. excited that you're here and we're going to talk about such a fun book and also about your work as a composer. <laughs> because the reason we're here with Matthias is that he not only is an opera composer, he composed an opera based on Agatha Christie. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So why don't you just start off by telling us how you came to Agatha Christie at first? I think... Um for me, it, it came out of like as a deep childhood love for the Orient Express mm-hmm. and the, the lore around it. And I, I used to build models and had like several different kinds of models of the Orient Express and all kinds of books about it. Yeah, so not the, not the murder on the Orient Express by no, the, the, Christie, the actual, the actual train, train yeah, yeah, the yeah, Orient yeah. Express. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Spent hours and days like building little things out of cardboard and, and all this kind of stuff. And played computer games based off it. And of course, one of the big things, uh, one of the big central uh, things in uh, surrounding the the story of the Orient Express is is Agatha Christie's uh, book, The Murder on the Orient Express. Right. So of course, I, I had to read that when I was a kid, and uh, was sort of deeply fascinated by this very sort of. I mean, it's such a it's such a funny uh, kind of like picture of that time, and, and all yeah. the characters are so. Sort of instantly, instantly, sort of you you recognize them somehow. They're sort of cliches of that era, mm-hmm. That's uh, so true. and like the the sort of the romanticism and this the high class uh, idea of this train um, mm. just permeates the story and was such like a big 
big thing for me when I was 11 or 12 or how yeah. old I was when I read that. For listeners who don't know, what is the Orient Express? Can you explain it really briefly, like the train itself? Because I'll know um, the book, but they might not know what the train actually yeah. is. It was uh, like a luxury train that ran from um, like in, in the early uh, 20th century. Yeah. Uh, between I think it was between Paris and uh, Constantinople, as yes. it was then known. Uh, and then it was just like a really high class luxury train. Right. And there was like uh, the famous stories of... of, of uh, wealthy and, and famous people traveling with it, but also like spies during the First World War and, mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of like romanticism about what this what this train sort of brought with it. Yeah. And there was a game you played too, right? Yeah, exactly. W- what was that? It was a, a computer game um, called, I think, The Last Express. That's right, yeah. Which actually, I, it's something like every three years or so, I find it on online and download it again <laughs> and play it once more, uh, with, which was sort of like a real-time uh, murder mystery uh, set on the Orient Express, right. not inspired, or well, maybe inspired, but not really sort of not the same story as not Agatha Christie, story, yeah. but but had a lot of the same elements like Russian counts and like a <laughs> mysterious golden mechanical bird that you had to have sing. Like it was really really great. Yeah, uh, I love that so much, and uh, it was also like a very special uh, game just from from that era even. Um, so that's also like a big part of of my sort of what the things I like the this this sort of nostalgic early 20th century, um, pre-First World War world. Yeah, um, yeah. absolutely. And ju- uh, just out of curiosity, when you read Murder on the Orient Express or any Christie, did you read it in English or in Danish? I think that one I, I certainly read in Danish okay. when I read it the first time. I think I still have like the, the, the tattered old version that really? I bought from a, a, a secondhand bookshop. Uh, and I think actually most of them, I, I think I've read like maybe six of her books or something. Yeah. Uh, and I think most of them I read in Danish because okay. there was like a series of like a like really, uh, what do you call them, like paperback, a right. really cheap paperback edition that came out in Denmark in, when I don't know, in the 50s. And you, yeah. could, you could just always find these in like old used bookshops for right. five corner. And, uh, and being a, a person who's so fluent in English as well, mm-hmm. do you notice any difference between the translations? Mm. I didn't think about it so much. I think I think the the tone was quite nicely hit in, oh, in those really? old Danish translations. That's yeah, cool. Because okay. it's, I, I think it's that that's also something I notice in other in other books like yeah. translated in in the fifties from English. Uh, is that there was that's, there's still a, like a lot of attention and, and care and, and just the feeling that the vocabulary was just bigger uh. and sort of a bit more elegant yeah. uh, in those days. Um, and I think that's something that really suits Christie's work because she does write very ele- elegantly. I think mm. yeah. that's so that's so cool, and that's actually really good to know. In your experience, is Agatha Christie popular in Denmark? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't think I would say that I know anyone who's like a big fan, but yeah. everyone knows them, of course. Okay. Uh, and I is it more like they might know the actual books themselves as opposed to like her and her work? Yeah, I've, yeah. I don't know. I actually, that's that's an interesting question. Like, I think someone like uh, Hercule Poirot and and like the Miss Marple things are sort of very famous because of like TV shows. Yeah, and, and you know they they do reruns of these every year. And uh, yeah. so I think like the the sort of the lore around her and the idea that she was a big crime writer and and wrote all of these stories. I think that that's definitely like a known fact. I don't know if okay. how many people are sort of like really hardcore fans. Okay, uh, that might be a bit rarer. Okay, that makes sense. And I I suppose, like, as you're saying, if there were these paperback series, it was probably the Mm -hmm. kind of thing that people picked up to, you know, go on trips or whatever, beach holidays and so on. Cool. So let's talk a little bit about your Agatha Christie-inspired opera. It was called Titanic. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about it. 
Yeah, so um, basically um, every year at the uh, at the Academy of, of Music in, in Copenhagen, they um, all of the opera singer students, they, they have to do like this project where they stage an opera and it has to be like around like 60 to 90 minutes. It has to have at least 20 characters. So everyone has something to do. And um, so many characters, exactly, <laughs> a million characters. Yeah. Um, and if, if you look at like operas in general, like not a lot of operas like fulfill these uh, these requirements. I think right. there's maybe like two or three in the standard repertoire. Uh-huh. So they would usually end up doing like weird in between things or like mashups of, of kinds of stuff. And then when I was studying composition, I um, one year I played the piano for the rehearsals of these uh, these these opera uh, these opera performances, and then I asked the singing professor, "Hey, uh, actually, I'd love to write uh, an opera, uh, mm. and I have an idea that it should be sort of based around somehow based on the Murder on the Orient Express, mm-hmm. because of course that's also a story with a million characters, and they're sort of very colorful yes. and instantly like recognizable in a way." And I thought that would just be some something that would be really fun um, to do as an opera. Yeah. And then, uh, thankfully, she uh, she was completely on board with that idea. Thought it was a great idea. Um, then I asked um, a Danish poet and author called Lea Maria Löbensin um, that I'd come across. I'd actually be, basically I, I was recommended to check out her things, and then I started reading one of her books of poetry. And by the third line of the first poem, I was just completely sold. Oh was, wow! She did something there where I thought. This is the person I need to work with. Um, So I asked her, uh, hey, uh, would you be interested in writing a a libretto for an opera based on the Murder on the Orient Express? And she was like, yeah, sure, that could be fun. Can you explain just really briefly what the difference between the composition and the libretto is? Oh, yeah. So the libretto is like the the, the script of of an opera. We we cling to these Italian terms as much as we can. No, I just (laughs) I I mean, this was stuff that I learned only because I know you. So I, I feel like people would love to know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So basically it's just it's just the the, the script and uh, like I knew even though if I wanted to base it off a story I know um, that it would be nicer for me to have input from someone who was a professional writer right uh, who knew what they were doing with words um, yeah so that's why I asked Leah would you want to write a libretto and Leah actually at that point had never seen an opera had no like relation to opera oh wow um, it was kind of funny I I met up with her she's such a great person i love her writing and, and her personality she's and she's also super funny mm-hmm. uh, and then i showed her a couple of clips of like a mozart opera and then i saw her her notes afterwards and like as far as i recall every the only thing she'd written was oboe at the time of death <laughs> <laughs> which was <laughs> such a funny thing to note um but but she was totally up for for writing it and she started sort of researching a bit on the the story and the era mm-hmm. we knew sort of that we were going to for copyright reasons, we probably weren't, weren't going to make it like a murder on the Orient Express, but something right. similar. Mm-hmm. And then after a couple of weeks, she sent me a text and said, hey, I was thinking, actually, wouldn't it be more fun to do this on the Titanic instead? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Which no one on the Titanic ever said. No, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and then the, basically my reaction was like, uh, I'm not sure, and I, I actually yeah, still... you were like kind of tied to that idea, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I still have on my phone like this long, long explanation of why exactly I didn't think that that was a good idea. Uh-huh. And I remember so clearly like writing that uh, message uh-huh. and then just going over and thinking, no, actually, it's more fun if yeah. it's on the Titanic. This is a perfect therapy moment because mm-hmm. this is what therapists tell you to do, which is like write out your response and then delete it. 
because that's the, the writing of it is what releases you. Right? Exactly. Okay, yeah, so yeah, you were yeah. re- released from needing it to be on the Orient Express. Exactly. Yeah. So I still I can I can still do that another time <laughs> when I when I'm famous enough to secure the copyright. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I get the Christie Foundation. Listen up. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. So you decided it would be on the Titanic, mm-hmm. but it was still going to be kind of Christie inspired. Yeah. yeah. Um, so tell us about the story itself. Yep. So actually, the, the 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 funny thing about it being on the Titanic was that it solved one of our big sort of dramaturgical problems, and also, um, and this problem is I think also the reason why there aren't really that many detective operas. Um, <laughs> uh, and that's because, little known fact. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think that's too bad. I mean, yeah, I, it really I, is. So many operas have basically the same kind of story. Yeah. And that annoys me a lot. Um, no, but but um, I think it's it's because you have this central character who's on stage and everything that happens on stage has to pass through his mind or her mind. And they, they have to like spend a lot of time sort of deducing. And right. Like, and, Thinking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and just, you know, a lot of that doesn't make for very interesting music if you're like constantly having to sing right. every it's single like, deduction. Yeah, exactly. And this is because of that. And that is because of this. <laughs> yeah. and then, you know, it doesn't really translate that well into something that could be like an aria or like a right. big number or, uh-huh. or you would just have too many of them. Right. Um, and also, of course, like characters in, in, in detective stories tends to be sort of secretive and like mm-hmm. withhold information a lot. That's so right. People aren't usually that talkative. So it would be like a very like monodramatic kind of thing. Right. Um, so basically what, what the, the setting it on the Titanic actually solved that problem for us because basically we get to the point where they're doing sort of Someone has been murdered on the Titanic. In fact, it's actually Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird. That's right. Um, yeah, and and then basically when, when they get to the point where they're sort of doing the interviews of everyone on, on board, the ship just sinks. Right. And then it's like a disaster story instead. <laughs> And then at the very end of, of the of the thing, uh, the ghost of Edgar Allan Poe sort of floats over the waters and, and reveals who the murderer was. It's a yeah, and I, I saw this when mm-hmm. it when it premiered in uh, at the Copenhagen Conserva- Conservatory. Yeah, yeah, Academy. Yeah, Academy, and uh, it was so fun, and it was mm-hmm. so well received. People just really enjoyed it. As you said, there was like so many characters because you clearly <laughs> had to like create a role for everybody. Yeah. Um, but that last scene where everyone's kind of like floating in the ether mm. is just so brilliantly done and Aww. so fun. And yeah, we just enjoyed it so much when we saw it. Thank you. Um, why? So we the the you know you would think we did murder on the Orange Express mm. for this podcast. We didn't. We did <laughs> the man in the brown suit, which also takes place on a boat. Mm-hmm. So why do you think a boat is a good place for like a mystery or a drama or just a story in general to mm. take place? I think for me, there's something exciting about these sort of confined spaces mm. and. Mm. Um, you know, and a boat is just for me. That's something that's really attractive to me. And and a lot of the time when I've written operas, it's really also been about the location. Yeah. Like the location is sort of a character in itself. Yes. In 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 the story, and and the the funny thing about a boat is that it's sort of like an impossibility. You know, it's this idea of of creating a stable environment in a deeply unstable environment. Yes. Like the, uh, the, ocean. The, the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> Very unstable. I just watched uh, Triangle of Sadness uh, oh, last week. Oh, is it week. good? Yeah, so good. I've heard I it's fantastic. It. Yeah, very, very much. Yeah. But it, and, it, you know, it has the same kind of thing. You know, it's this idea of all of these upper class people going on this incredibly luxurious yacht. Right. But that they're still, of course, so, also just like subjects to the whims of the ocean. Right. And bad uh, bad seafood as well, <laughs> infamously in that book film. Oh, boy. Um, and I think that that's – and also it's, it's, a, it's an interesting three-dimensional space yes. at boat. Because, of course, it's not – um, I mean, it's 
you know, sometimes the walls are a bit crooked and there's, there's something like the, the, the laws of gravity don't mm-hmm. apply in the, exactly the same way. Right. You have portholes exactly, and you have yeah. all these kinds of, yeah, like Div- maze-like elements. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you can you can go move up and down mm-hmm. and like everything is sort of connected in weird ways. Right. Um, and that's also in the book, you know, th- things getting thrown thrown through uh, portholes and things yes. sliding in under uh, dresses and so on right. because the ship is uh, is rocking. And yeah, and like which room to have exactly, and all this kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's 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 just a really fascinating like uh, environment, I think. And it that's is. also why why I actually I think actually yeah, basically two of my operas now have been set on ships. <laughs> sort of. Go for a trifecta. Third exactly. One on a ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You can be known as like the ship opera exactly. composer. Exactly. Oh, we have to do ship again. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, it's the ship. Um, so the book we did, as I just said, was The Man in the Brown Suit. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to give a little kind of uh, historical note mm-hmm. so people can know a little bit more about the book. Uh, the Man in the Brown Suit was published in 1924. So that's towards the beginning of Agatha Christie's career. Um, it was published just after Murder on the Link which is the second Poirot book. And right before, Poirot investigates, which is the first Poirot collection of 11 stories, and also just before The Secret of Chimneys. Um, Interestingly, The Man in the Brown Suit and The Secret of Chimneys are both these kind of like adventure mystery books, um, thrillers, if you will. And in a lot of ways, I find them both to be like quite preposterous, but they're very much of the time. People really enjoyed that kind of mystery, both in terms of books and also film. As a reader, it's like I think it's very interesting because you can kind of see that Christie's playing around with what kind of writer she's going to be. Um, this isn't really the kind of book she ends up writing on a regular basis, but she takes some of these characters. Colonel Race, for example, appears in more books. Um, and she kind of was seeing what was working and then leaving the rest. And she also did that with Secret of Chimneys, where she took Superintendent Battle out, um, left the, the thriller part, and took the character. The Man in the Brown Suit is the first time Christie uses the double narrative device, uh, which she goes on to use quite a number of times, most successfully, I think, in the ABC murders. Um, it's also the first time we're introduced to Colonel Race, the strong, silent man of mystery, who later appears with Poirot in Cards on the Table, Death on the Nile, and Sparkling Cyanide. So he's in quite a lot of books after that. He was a popular character. The character of Sir Eustace Pedler, whose diary we follow as one of the narratives, was based on a man named Major E.A. Belcher, uh, who organized the infamous Empire Tour that Christie took with her first husband, Archie Christie, in 1922. Now, a lot of Christie's work around that time was based on this trip. She loved this trip. Christie did not like Major Belcher because he was, like, very demanding and kind of annoying, but he had this kind of brazen charm that she really tapped into for the character of Eustace Pedler. And you can really see that because even though Eustace is the villain, and Bedingfeld, who's the, one of the narrators, says that she can't stop herself from liking him, even at the end, when she knows what he's done. So Major Belcher actually suggested to Agatha Christie that she write a book with him as the character, and that she use Mill House, which is the house he lived in, as the site for the murder, or the site for the book. Um, I don't think he necessarily wanted to be the villain, but uh, you take what you can get. So he became the villain. She did use Mill House. It's the place where the body is discovered in Marlowe. So, yeah, this is a nice kind of slice of life thing for her where you can really directly see a character is drawn from somebody that uh, she knew. So that is The Man in the Brown Suit. Can you give us like a really brief synopsis in your words of the book? 
Yeah. Um, so basically, the, it's about this um, this young, uh, recently orphaned woman, uh, Anne Beddingfield, mm -hmm. who dreams of, of going on an adventure, an exciting adventure. And she moves to London and is sort of immediately implicated in, in this, <laughs> in this uh, adventure yeah. um, involving uh, two murders and uh, theft of diamonds mm -hmm. and this mysterious man in a brown suit who is sort of the chief suspect. Um, she sort of decides she's not uh, happy with how the police are investigating all of these things that she sees are clearly interconnected. So mm -hmm. she sort of decides to follow a clue that she has found and uh, goes on a ship uh, where she meets uh, basically all of the other characters. Mm -hmm. um, and the ship ends up in South Africa where the, the rest of, of the story is set. That's right. And basically um, it's like a... Yeah, it's it's like a sort of a, a weird sort of thriller mystery. You know, people have uh, many different identities and like dress up as other characters, switch gender, <laughs> yeah. and, and she's sort of in the middle of all of it, gets captured and it's it's and uh, escapes. So it's it's right. really like uh, a mystery adventure book. Yes, it's and then, very much an adventure. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, she also falls in love and uh, with, with this uh, strong uh, <laughs> strong male character. Right. Um, and uh, yeah. I'm not. I don't know if, it should, if I should give away the the ending, but uh, you're allowed to. We do yeah. allow spoilers on this podcast, but we don't um, demand them. Yeah. So you're absolutely welcome to say what you like. Yeah. Well, I mean, it ends very sort of conclusively for her. She yes. sort of <laughs> finds the, the the adventure that she's been dreaming of, and yeah. then she sort of settles down uh, on a tiny island in a, an obscure African <laughs> river. Right. Yeah, yeah, she settles down on a fictional island called Zambezi. Yeah. So, uh, yes, uh, a little wifey, mm. and uh, it's a very strange ending, I think. <laughs> Let's talk about this character for a second, Anne mm. Medingfeld, because to be honest with you, she is the reason I don't like this book. Mm. I like Sir Eustace Pedler. Mm. I think he's a really funny character. His yeah. narratives are super hilarious to me. They're well-written. They're a little bit silly. Um, she really draws a character out of mm. just his diary. Um but Anne Bedingfeld, I find to be this like really like plucky adventurous mm. in a way that is so twee to me. <laughs> um, what do you think about her as character? Uh, yeah, I mean, I totally see see what you mean. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of like an overgrown child detective yeah. in a way, <laughs> yeah. sort of uh, implicated in, in very actual, Nancy Drew, right? yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah, but with with real like murders and right, like yeah, and also a lot of like sexual energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, There's sort of a, an undercurrent uh, of uh, because her, her father was an archaeologist right. and a paleontologist as well. Mm -hmm. So she has like a lot of this like uh, paleontological knowledge and mm -hmm. like about ancient men. And she dreams about these cavemen like characters. Yeah. And it's and she's sort of very like aware that of, of her own sexuality in a way yeah. and like who she's attracted uh, to throughout the story. And yeah. Yeah. And I think that's also why, you know, it's. There's something about the way that she just sort of uh, leaves all of like she's had this amazing adventure at the end, yeah. and then she's just instantly like settles down as soon as she has the man that she loves, right? That, you know, that, who like yeah. abuses her throughout this <laughs> exactly. entire story, yeah, not yeah. physically, but like, and actually at moments physically, he mm. like grabs her very hard at one point and like uh, chokes her. Yeah, 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 but she loves that. She loves it. She loves it's like the caveman fantasy. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah. Dark. She, I know it's <laughs> really it is really dark. Mm. Would, do you think would would a character like this be applicable to an opera like could you have a character like this hmm. i mean i think you know it's it's as if like i think opera has like this amazing ability to make everything a bit more ridiculous and it's, <laughs> it's something i'm very aware of like yeah. for, for me at least that's how i feel that, that a lot of operatic characters are just instantly 
because of the whole medium and how it works. Okay. Some there's like uh, there's something ridiculous about them that I think as a composer you have to be aware of. Okay. And, and if you don't want them to appear ridiculous, you have to be really careful with how mm. how you make them uh, f- do things on stage and and what they sing and and how they sing it. Um, and I think someone like Anne Bedingfield, it's really hard not to make her even right even more ludicrous on stage. Yes. I think. Uh, it could be interesting, but also, I don't know, it's it's kind of a character that's sort of not really of this day. I think it, it might be interesting, but I think, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm more sort of tempted to, like, to then reveal her bad sides in a way. Right. Or, or all the things that are problematic about her could right. be interesting, you know. Yeah, and that's kind of the thing is we never get her bad side. We get, like, she's so plucky. She's almost mm. too plucky. Exactly. You know, it's this kind of thing. and. They call her, um, what do they call her throughout the book? They call her Gypsy Girl, which oh, is obviously yeah. not great. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, because she's, she dresses as a gypsy, as a... Yeah, and like there's also, spiral. even before that, they call her that because they try to oh, kind yeah. of make this connection to, like, she's so kind of, like, ethereal mm-hmm. and they can't quite get, a like, a handle on who she is. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, it's not meant in a very nice way. And mm. I don't know that gypsy was the slur then that it is today. I don't know enough about the term, um, but it's a slur today. So obviously, mm. you know, you wouldn't be using that word today. Mm. Um, so, yeah, she's she's an, she's the worst character of the whole book <laughs> and she's the narrator. <laughs> so it's like hard to get into it sometimes, yeah. I think. Mm. Um, but did you have any characters that you like did connect to in this book? Well, I mean, I think I also had have like a soft spot for Eustace Petler, yeah. just because you know he is, as as, I mean, of course, now spoiling it all, it turns yeah. out that he's the bad guy right. in the end, and he is just like this. But he's also a narrator. You you read mm-hmm. a lot of the story through his own diary, which yes. of course is very interesting because he turns out to be the bad guy. Right. You know, and he's he's writing this diary for for whom exactly? Which he like, then gives to Anne and says like, "Here, yeah. use this later on." Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And just like it's sort of like his alibi. Yeah. And and it's written <laughs> in like this overly pompous style and like really yeah. sexist and like, but very very yes, very stupid and very yeah. funny. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And then, you know, of, of course, like, there's just like this romantic idea of like the gentleman villain, you know, right. and he has elements of that, even mm-hmm. if he's actually a, in many ways a bit too clumsy about it. Right. And, like, yeah. Well, what I love about his character is all he's trying to do is retire. Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't want to be in villainry anymore. Mm-hmm. He wants to, like, go live a life of ease. And so mm-hmm. he's trying to kill off everybody so that he can basically just, like, <laughs> stop doing it. Mm-hmm. But, of course, you know, when you're the villain, you don't get to you don't get that to no. do that, right? You're like, well, if you keep killing people, like, eventually they're going to come for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, and that's also the, the funny thing about the ending is that, you know, 
that he sends a letter to Anne yeah. when she's like living on this obscure island. Right. <laughs> and he's somewhere in South America or uh-huh. something. And she's like really happy that he, he sends her this letter. And right. yeah, it's such a funny, funny thing to have at the end. So maybe he does actually end up living the, the life of his dreams. It sounds like he does. And, and mm-hmm. you know, as she says, she never can really bring herself to dislike him because <laughs> he's so he's like charming and he's funny mm. and he. Um, he likes to have a good drink and tell a good story. Mm-hmm. He kind of comes across as like the country squire, yeah. but he just happens to also like run a huge larcenry ring and like murder <laughs> people on the side. It's like, you yeah. know, it's just like what he does. Mm-hmm. It's just like a little thing. He's also a member of parliament. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so The Man in the Brown Suit is one of Christie's standalone novels. And what we talked about it's kind of this like thriller mm-hmm. adventure. Um, do you think it could have benefited from having like Poirot or Marple? I mean, it would have been a Poirot, I think, mm-hmm. had it been one. But like uh, kind of a, like an anchor detective as opposed to having Anne doing the detecting? Uh, I think for this kind of story where it's both like a mystery and a thriller, mm-hmm. I think it's 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 more... And, you know, the, the the funny thing is that Anne constantly refers to these, what, what's it called, The Adventures of Pamela or something like, yeah, like right. a, a, a adventure novels with with female leads. Yeah. And it's like it's such a gag throughout the book that she's talking about these adventures yeah. and then marveling at the fact that she's also implicated. I know, as, she's like, I can't like, believe I'm tied up in a basement. Exactly. It's amazing. Yeah, it's so so fun. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think it's it's really a book that's written to be a, a part of that, that kind of writing. Yeah. And I have a hard time seeing... Poirot in that or Miss mm. Marple. Um, and I think also, yeah, I mean, I think actually like because the sexual tension in a way seems to be sort of like a driving motor also beca- behind like who this mysterious man in the brown suit is and and why he behaves the way he does. Mm-hmm. And he ends up being like, oh, okay, oh, that's why he was so mysterious. Yeah, because he had a heart of gold. Really. I, mean, all this <laughs> I know, because he's just stu- protecting his heart. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's why you had to choke that woman yeah. for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. I so I think I think mm, I'll, I think it's it's a it's in in many ways it's an it's a successful book. I think she mm. but you can really also as you say it's like she's finding her own like what what's her style of writing and then she experiments with writing this this, this adventure novel with a female right. narrator and it's clearly such a an established thing at this time. Um and then she just sees how how can I do this and yeah. she does it really well but uh, maybe, thankfully, didn't, <laughs> didn't decide to. It. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> didn't pursue that 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 line. I think you're right. I think I do think Anne Bedingfeld is a direct progenitor of um, Tuppence, mm. who is of of the Tommy and Tuppence. Um, there's a I think four or five of those books, mm. um, and they are my least favorite of the the Christie novels. There as because they're just too plucky. Mm. I just. I can't stand pluck. I just hate it so much. (laughs) And, you know, I just find them a bit twee. And I do think there's an element for Christy of, like, experimenting with this, like, feminist idea Mm. of a woman who can do things. But she so doesn't kind of really buy that herself Mm. that she ends up making this, like, quite sexist character, I think. Mm. Um, This quite, like, oppressed woman in a lot of ways. Her only value is in kind of, like, taking on the adventure as opposed to making choices really about her own Mm. life. Um, If you were kind of writing an opera about this particular book, would it be more the mystery or would it be, like, the romance Mm. that would be the center of it? I think for me, the mystery is more fun. Okay. Uh, but you like a mystery. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. operas tend to be more romantic yeah, yeah, in general. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. And that's what I want to change. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I think I think I would just go for that more because I think that's yeah. also something, <laughs> I mean, and returning to the point that, you know, 
that that there aren't many detective operas, and I think it's yeah. also because you know, you you just can't expect people to hear every word. It's, yes, it's, of that's course, really true. Of course, you can have like sub subtitles and so on, but still, that's a bit of a hassle to read and like mm -hmm. follow the action. And and I think it's gonna lead to frustration uh, a lot <laughs> of the time if like people feel like because even like reading the book, it's you know, there's some of the clues are so subtle that right, you know, and and it's like a really seasoned crime reader will of course like notice things right away. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's. They're like, oh, okay, that's what she's referencing now that, like, a hundred pages later. At least. <laughs> and imagine having to do that on opera where people sing it. And, yeah, I, yeah. I think uh, that would be... Uh, I mean, but that's also something that's sort of fun for me. I like challenging people in that way, you know, having, like, convoluted plots. and uh, Yeah, I mean, talk uh, a little bit about your latest opera, Lisbon mm. and Fleur, which has a very complicated, very funny... <laughs> mm. It's not a mystery, but it's got a very funny plot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, it, it's actually uh, my, my second collaboration with uh, Lea-Marie Leuventhal, mm -hmm. who also wrote the, the libretto for Titanic. And uh, But this time, we actually sort of did everything together from scratch. Um, we got a commission from the Copenhagen Opera Festival to write, like, a full full-length opera mm -hmm. uh, and then um, together with the director Natasha Methrell we um, actually basically came up with the whole story the three of us uh, in weekly meetings during the first corona lockdown wow so it was really 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 a nice thing wow. to do in, in lockdown you know when 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 you couldn't expect anything yeah. to just have like this dream of this big opera yeah. that we were going to do in in years and years and yeah. years um, and so basically our idea was to have um, actually for that one my sort of first uh, f first uh, point of inspiration was uh, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley oh, Jackson. Oh my god, that's so I so see that now having yeah, seen, yeah, seen yeah. it. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's one of my favorite books mm -hmm. and uh, such a strange, uh, and just basically this idea of some people trying to survive in a hostile environment, right. uh, like a haunted house. Mm -hmm. And then um, and then Leah had just read, uh, read a book by uh, J.G. Ballard called High Rise mm -hmm. about sort of this like dystopic high rise society. Mm -hmm. um, and then basically we, we combined those two. Yeah. So so the story is about these seven characters who have to move into this like um, basically it's, it's something that was supposed to have been like a luxury high rise, but there was an underfunded or something. And it's like full of asbestos and like really hostile and, yeah. and terrible. And they just have to move into it because there's, this is the only place they can afford. Mm -hmm. And then um, it turns out that the the flat is actually haunted uh, by these mysterious faces on the wall. Um, and basically, like, the, the plot just gets progressively weirder and weirder, and yeah, all the characters <laughs> sort of undergo this kind of strange transformation, mm -hmm. um, sort of spurred on by the house, and it ends very bloody. But it's also, like, an absurd sort of comedy, like sort of like American Horror Story in a yeah. way, just a bit more on the light side in yeah. a way, I would say. Yeah. I would also say it's, like, it's not campy. Mm. It's, it's very funny and it's sharp. Yeah. Um, and I think I, I mean I saw it on its closing night at the Copenhagen Opera Festival mm -hmm. people loved it it was just you know such a fabulous show mm -hmm. um, but it is it is a complicated plot and how as a composer and working with a librettist do you make something complicated mm -hmm. like accessible in an opera oh, I don't know I think the so much of the plot is just me and Natasha and Leah just like throwing <laughs> ideas <laughs> at each other. Like, we have to have this this also in the yeah. story. He needs to have left his seven daughters and we need to have... That is uh, the craziest. Can you yeah. please explain what you just said? Uh, so one of the characters is called Ra and he's this uh, this man in his early 30s is mm -hmm. sort of the idea. And he's left, um, basically, he, he had um, a girlfriend and they had 
first, like, what is it, triplets and then quadruplets <laughs> two right. years later. And basically, after having given birth to seven uh, seven daughters, uh, the, the mother of the children die. And he sort of, he tries to take care of these kids for, for a couple of years, but then he sort of he's such like uh, someone who loves his his own personal freedom so he's basically left his daughters yes alone alone yeah and like ha- there's like this idea that oh, they'll they'll teach themselves how to shoplift and survive <laughs> in this weird dystopic landscape right and so he winds up in this apartment um but like doesn't have a room he lives in like a little pop-up a little tent, tent yeah. <laughs> in the living room and the only thing he's brought with him is <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, so funny. Yeah, so, is is uh, is seven mugs with the names and faces of his daughters, <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, yeah, uh, really really stupid. And it's idea. all the same face. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, there are uh, triplets and, and quadruplets. Yeah. Um, and that, that's sort of like his his most treasured item, and yeah. like a lot of the story revolves around him like trying to not. Uh, because these cups can't go in the dishwasher, right? Because the, the, the picture will, will get washed exactly, off, right? Yeah. And of course, spoiler alert: this happens, and he throws <laughs> a huge tantrum, and yeah, there's a lot of drama, and and each of these characters has this like ridiculous past or like yeah. some some kind of aspect of them that is ridiculous, and then that is then sort of uh, exaggerated by this 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 house and the whole yes. like the hostile situation yeah. in a way, and leads to a lot of drama in yeah. the end. And it's so interesting to me that you wrote it during the pandemic because mm. there's definitely a pandemic element of that yeah. too, right? Like they're all in this enclosed space for a very long amount mm. of time and they can't really leave. Um, so I think that definitely seeped in mm. as well. Did yeah. you feel that when you were writing it? It's kind of funny because we'd actually thought about all of that before the pandemic even happened. Oh, that's so, so it was kind of like, um, yeah, because we met like a couple of months before the first lockdown, like in the the fall before that, mm-hmm. and uh, and started talking about this. Um, and I think we were sort of the, the the strange thing is that they can actually leave, but they just somehow don't. Yeah, they keep being like, oh, "I'll do it later." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 sort of a weird, and of course, like it's it's very easy to have it as this kind of pandemic environment, and a lot of people have commented on yeah, that. But it's it's kind I of bet. funny that, I, and it's you know, I think it's also just something. There's something in the air about that because, mm-hmm. like this, the uh, this um, playwright uh, wrote to me, sent me an email that she had actually just finished a, a drama school. And uh, had finished with a play that was basically the exact same yeah. story as, oh, as Lisbon Floor. Whoa! So that, I mean, like including like uh, uh, a mechanical womb. No way! Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like that's wild. Yeah, it was so so crazy. And she was like, "What? What happened?" It'd be sort of, <laughs> yeah, there's like yeah. a break in the space time continuum. That's exactly, so weird. Yeah. So I think there is something, and I've obviously yeah. this obviously like subconsciously this this idea of the. The sort of the closed environment yeah. and like not being able to leave is something that we all know <laughs> in, intimately now. Yeah. Um, and of course that we know how how a situation can like evolve mm-hmm. like in these con- contained spaces. Yeah. Like it's. it's yeah. I think it also speaks very much to like our generation's city living experiences, mm-hmm. which is that people get into apartment buildings and it's like you're never going to get a house Mm. (laughs) unless you get rich. So people are kind of in these, like, enclosed spaces for a Mm. very long period of time. And um, so I I think it also speaks more to, like, our generation's living situation Mm. as well. Yeah. Um, That's so interesting. Mm. Well, you know, Lisbon Floors, can people see it anywhere? Like, is there anywhere to see it yet? Um, I think by the time this comes out, there will be some promotion material uh, out because we're trying to, of course, uh, uh, get it 
put up again. Right. Uh, have it play somewhere else. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Okay, so we'll link to that yep. in the episode notes. Um, if you had to write another Agatha Christie-based opera, mm. what would it be about? Oh, I thought a lot about this. I think, <laughs> okay, like, obviously, like, if I had to do, like, a, a trifecta of both stories, I would yes. do Murder on the Nile. Oh, fun. Which, I mean, I think a, a steamship is also such a cool uh, totally. thing. But but then I thought also the one that's called um, And Then There Were None mm-hmm. is also really, like, because yes. I, I re- remember reading that. I saw the, the, the film version of it mm-hmm. also and loved it. And, like, the idea that you're sort of slowly killing off characters, yes. I think, is really fun operatically. Yeah. I totally agree with you. And in fact, I think I would like an opera of And Then There Were None more (laughs) than I like the book of Then There Were None because I do think it's such an absurdly dramatic Mm. um, plot. Exactly. It would play so well as an opera. I think you should do it. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that's also sort of great for me as a composer and Agatha Christie's characters is that they have like this – they're not exactly – 3D, three-dimensional characters. Mm. They don't have that much depth, but they're not completely two-dimensional either. Mm. But they're sort of, in, you instantly know who they are because yes. she does use like these stock characters throughout her, her writing. Yeah. And that is such a good thing to have in opera, to just have these characters that are sort of instant, you can, they, they can say one line and then you instantly know yeah. this is that kind of person. Yes. And that's really, really helpful in opera to have these very sort of clear character archetypes in a yeah. way and I think that's also why I was so attracted to Murder on the Orient Express in that way you know did you have these these different kinds of, of, of people that sort of instantly you can mm. use as characters in opera that's so true and I what I love about Murder on the Orient Express actually is because she does that so well she does what I would call it character sketches or outlines and mm. you you immediately fill it in yourself um, based on kind of like your cultural understanding. But what I love about Murder on the Orient Express is they end up being so much deeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Each of those characters has such an incredible backstory and so much history that they bring to what happens on the Orient Express. Exactly. Um, that she, she does that almost, it's almost, a, it's not a satire, but she's almost like kind of tricking you into thinking you get them. Mm. And then you realize you really don't. Yeah. Um, it's and like po- the, 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 the floor falls. Uh, exactly. And it happens to Poirot. In fact, we kind of experience that mm-hmm. through Poirot. He realizes he doesn't quite understand what's happened yeah. um, and until he does. So I think that's I think that's so interesting. And I think she would have loved to see an opera of her work, <laughs> I bet, because she loved having her work staged. Mm. Um, that's that's so cool. For people who would be interested in, like, getting into more opera, where would you recommend that they start? Other than with your <laughs> pieces, of course. Oh, yeah, that's that's a, that's a good question because I think everyone has such different things that they, yeah. that they would be excited about in opera. For me, I think actually, because I'm someone with a really short attention span, actually, <laughs> uh, which is not so good for opera. But the, one of the first operas I, I really loved was um, this opera by Ravel, which is a French composer. He wrote mm-hmm. this opera called L'Enfant et les Sortilèges. Which is about like a really cute story about a child who um, is scolded by his uh, his mom for mm-hmm. not doing his homework, and then he thrashes thrashes his entire room. Oh, fun! And then <laughs> and then all the things in his room come alive one at a time and, and come and berate him for uh, for the things that he's done. And they're sort of it's re- really absurd story, but it's really really cute also. Yeah. And then I think also one of the ones that was like a big experience for me as a teenager was Porgy and Bess. Mm, by, I love Porgy and Bess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. By by Gershwin, mm-hmm. um, which is basically like so many, like a, a whole bunch of like classic opera narratives, but just situated in a in an environment that's unlike most operas. Yeah. And it's just like so much, so much of it is like 
became jazz standard, so on. And like yes. there's this very big melodic focus that's very easy to grasp, yeah. was for me at least as a teenager, Yeah. Uh, which I thought was a, a problem for me when I tried to listen to like Mozart operas and like Puccini when I was younger at least. Mm-hmm. Now I, I would say that also like things like um, uh, The Marriage of Figaro or something mm-hmm. is, is a really... F- just a really fun opera for me. It's also one of those stories with a bunch of a million characters and a convoluted plot that maybe doesn't make as much sense now as it did in the late 1800s <laughs> or the 1700s. But yeah, but it's for me, it's still like a really exciting opera. Yeah. And just like watching that many characters running around. And yeah, I think it's just funny for me. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and then actually, maybe yeah. I should give a shout out to one of the few detective operas, actually. Oh, yeah. Which is a sort of... Uh, not very often done, called the uh, Macropolis case okay. by a Czech composer, Leos Janáček, and it's 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 a fantastic story. It's the base, It's it's a it revolves around like this mysterious will and like an inheritance that someone can't get, and the will has disappeared, and then this this mysterious woman ca- called uh, Elena Mac- oh, Emilia Marti shows up, and she's like this big um, lady of the world. She's a, a, an operatic soprano mm-hmm. and she reveals that she knows where this will was, was hidden a hundred years ago. And then sort of, how does she know that? And then it sort of, de- uh, they figure out throughout the story that she is actually um, a 300 year old woman who lived in Prague in the medieval times. Whoa. And, and um, her father was an alchemist who invented this uh, elixir of life. And she gets involved with this plot because the the will also has the, the recipe for for the elixir of life, and she's like starting to run out, so she needs to find it also. And it's it's such a strange plot, but oh there's something. Goodness. And this character is just so fascinating. Yeah. This, this uh, I think maybe actually even, I think oh, 400 years old uh, woman, and and like she has this story, and she meets she meets this old old man who has met her when he was a young man, and like fell in love oh, with wow. her then. And yeah, it's it's such a and it's such a kooky plot, and all the characters are really strange. So the Macropolis case is also something I would recommend. Macropolis case. Wow. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you because you were saying, you know, a lot of operas are kind of similar in their plot. Would you you, but you're someone who writes very different operas. Mm. Have you gotten like a lot of pushback about that? Or are you is it are you finding that it's like becoming more celebrated? I think uh, I think people are really keen to have uh, non-traditional stories in opera. I think and also a lot of lots of my colleagues who also write operas. There's so so much about a movement now that when you're writing opera now, it's rarely the the sort of traditional kinds of narratives. Mm. Like I'm I'm clearly very shaped by my own generation and and like Netflix TV shows and <laughs> right. stuff. There are also like colleagues of mine who do much more sort of bizarre and like really like big philosophical operas yeah. where there's like maybe no characters or no plot, but there's something else in there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So so I think for me it's if, now it's it's a field that can be so many more things than than what it used to be. That's so interesting. So if you don't have a plot or characters, when does an opera stop becoming like a concerto? Like what mm. what's the like you know what I mean like where's the line? Yeah, but I think I think that that's that's what's interesting okay. about it is that it, you know you can I mean if if I was a director I would probably say you can stage anything. Okay. I mean there's this uh you can find the drama in any kind of story or yeah. in any kind of like even if it's completely vague or just sort of I mean of course it leads to like maybe a more strange experience or mm-hmm. maybe an experience that's maybe more for, for sort of seasoned fans. But you can also sometimes have things that can be so instinctively nicely put together that mm. and like speak so clearly, even if what they're saying is incomprehensible, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yes. Um, that you can have 
so many more different kinds of experiences. Yeah. I, I, for me, I really love plot. And I think mm -hmm. actually Lisbon Floor, the last opera I did, is actually sort of in a way like a Mozart opera, but mm. just updated to to these days. I mean, he was like, when he wrote his operas in the late 1700s, they were like hysterically funny and like mm -hmm. people loved them and, and it, they were full of these everyday characters, which was still unusual in opera back then. Yeah. And all of these strange convoluted plots and people having affairs and dressing up as each other and, and like sneaking and all the, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And that's kind of what I wanted to see if I could do with Lisbon Floor was mm. take elements of this Mozart thing and then just transpose it to today. Because yeah. I think that's not something that I've seen done a lot, actually, yeah. in opera. Like Absolutely. having these sort of really contemporary um, stories like that. But with kind of a classical feel in the music. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's I absolutely felt that when I saw your 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 opera and I'm not an opera expert by any mm. means I do actually love opera but I would not call myself someone who knows much about opera or the history of it mm. and and I just the the combination of that classical sound with the really really strange funny <laughs> uh, modern story is mm. such a great one um, and I really like what you're saying about kind of like once you know something so well, you can kind of take the formula and turn it inside out. Mm. It's one of the things I love about Agatha Christie, not to bring it back to Agatha Christie, the <laughs> reason we're on this podcast. <laughs> but but that is what she essentially did with mystery is mm. once she figured out how to write a really great formula for a mystery, she could turn it any way she wanted. Mm. Um, and that's when it gets really fun, I think, as the creator. For the reader, it's if it's good, it's good. If it's bad, it's bad. But as the creator, that's when it gets fun, I mm. think. Um Thank you so much for being with us today, Matthias. Thank you so much for having me. Where would you like to be found by the people? And if so, where can they find you? Uh, like social media and yeah. stuff. Uh, how does this work, actually? Should I, like, say what my profiles are called or my... Yeah, yeah. Say, you can, like, yeah. spell it? Just, or? You can just say it out, like, at Matthias. Okay, yeah. Dot Vestigod. I okay, just said yeah. it. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I mean, my, my website is uh, Matthias Vestergaard, mm -hmm. with just a single A, dot yeah. com. Mm -hmm. I'm having some trouble accessing it, so I hope I will be able to update it soon. But, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I have my Instagram account, which is the same, mm -hmm. but just with a, a dot between my two names. Right. Matthias, Matthias dot, dot that's right. That's right. And this will all be in the episode notes. So if people mm. want to find Matthias, he does some really lovely videos of himself playing piano. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want to see a great pianist and composer Aww. at work, his Instagram is the place to be. Well, thank you. And uh, I'm just really grateful that you wanted to do this with me today. Thanks so much, Matthias. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you to our producer, Kate Crischel, and our sound engineer, Winter Robinson. If you want to support this podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at Tea and Murder. You can rate and review us on iTunes, and you can tell all your friends and even strangers to follow us on your podcast platform of choice. Are you ready for the next cozy murder? It's The Secret of Chimneys. You can rent it from your local library, buy from your local independent bookseller, or if you need to buy online, we recommend bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores with every purchase. A link for next week's book can be found in the episode notes. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tea and Murder. We hope you had a bracing dose of both. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.